You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Hello and welcome, everybody. You are listening to Mushing, and I am Robert, and I'm joined tonight by a former publisher of Mushing Magazine. His name is Greg Sellenton. He's calling in from Florida, but he's living in the Pacific Northwest by way of Alaska several years ago. Greg, how's it going tonight? It's going great. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for joining us. I know your and I's paths have crossed several times over the years, but this is the first time you've ever been on the podcast. So thanks for being on. Let's jump right into this, Greg. Can you give us a quick bio, who you are and what you're all about, please? <laughs> I don't know how quick I can be. Um, well, I, uh, I was living in the New York City area when I got into mushing in the early 90s. And um, quickly tried to figure out how to get out of New York City because my uh, <clears throat> my addiction for the sport kind of overtook things. Uh, and uh, I finally moved out further into the country in the late 90s and then moved to Alaska in the, the mid 2000s. Uh, but um, that uh, my background at the time was in photography. I grew up in a family that owned a newspaper, a small newspaper. Uh, so I was uh, really well versed in visual arts, albeit it's very different nowadays, but uh, traditional visual arts and uh, went to college, uh, FIT and NYU for photography and filmmaking and um, was working in that field when I got into mushing. And then um, I started a magazine for the competitive side of mushing called Sled Dog Sports in 2004, which um, took off pretty quickly. Uh, and then about a year later, the owners of Mushing Magazine, who are based in Esther, Alaska, just outside of Fairbanks, called me and said, hey, we like what you're doing with Sled Dog Sports and we're thinking of retiring. Would you like to take over Mushing Mag? Uh, and I did, and I ran them both uh, separately for about a year, I think. Then I realized the market just wasn't big enough, and I combined the two, and it really took off. It allowed me to to move from where I was living in New Jersey at the time with all my dogs and everything and move to Willow, Alaska, and publish the magazine out of there for about uh, 10 years. So let me jump in here on that side of the story. So... I'm sure a lot of people that are listening, people listen all, all over, of course, Greg, but they think about mushing and they think about New York City and, of course, New Jersey, not necessarily a mushing hotbed. What was the, <laughs> what was what was the scene like back in the day? Where were you doing uh, most of your in, in Pennsylvania or where? So, yeah, it was actually pretty cool. I um I got a uh, Siberian Husky from a pet shop in Manhattan, like, you know, just basically the worst way to get started with dogs. I had had dogs growing up, but I wasn't, you know, the typical, like, uh, rural farm, you know, background that I see a lot of mushers come from. Uh, but, uh, I tend to get into things like a thousand percent 
So, you know, this is before the internet in the early 90s. I had this one pet shop, Siberian Husky, and I started doing some research and I found out that in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, which is about two hours south of New York City, where I was living with this sled with this Siberian Husky, that they have cart races uh, through the uh, the Pine Barrens and the Cranberry Bogs. So I went down to uh, check out the scene one day. Um, and uh, actually, by that time, I had another dog, a show dog, Siberian. So I had two dogs. And uh, I went down there, and the people were very welcoming. And I actually think that um, they still do cart racing down there in the Jersey Pine Barrens. Um, you know, New Jersey gets a bad rap in a lot of ways. Most people fly into Newark and, you know, then drive into New York and all, they go by all the refineries. But in northwestern New Jersey, where I eventually ended up living, a very beautiful country. And southern New Jersey is a lot of horse farms and pine barrens, and it's quite rural. Right. So uh, it was a lot of fun. I was uh, I ended up uh, getting more and more dogs, as everyone does who starts to get into the sport, kind of the, the uh, condensed version of the timeline. And um ended up racing there and then going up to New England and racing on sleds. And for a while, I was the vice president of the New England Sled Dog Club in the early 2000s and uh, raced up there, raced the iconic Laconia race, uh, not in open class, but in six dog class. I think my my best finish there was, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe a top five. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really an interesting scene back then. Um, the cart racing, you had everyone from coming up from like a little further south, like uh, with their hunting dogs. And then you had purebred dogs. Uh, Herman and Hetty Lindeboom are some of the main people that I remember. They were Siberian Husky people who did showing and racing, and they were kind of my mentors at that time. And then later on, when I started to get into snow racing, uh, a gentleman named Vince Buonello, who was Longtime New England Sled Dog Club uh, member and racer, good friends with Harris Dunlap, who uh, he introduced me to Harris. And um, <clears throat> he was my mentor, uh, as well as Harris, uh, for some of the formative years there. But I got really into it. So I had to move out to northwestern New Jersey. Eventually, I had a lot of property out there, about 60 plus acres. But I still had to work in New York City. So I would I would commute. Uh, a couple of hours to work three or four days a week and come back out and train dogs. There's some story in there that I may have skipped over, but uh, let me just put it like, it's very hard to live close to New York city and train sled dogs. <laughs> oh, I, I can, I can imagine for sure. So Greg, yeah. you said that your family was involved in the newspaper business. I believe you said, and it, did you grow up sort of running, uh, learning the ropes, if you will, about uh, layout and all that side, We're, you know, heading into the magazine here? Um, I did in a way, but not when I was super young. Like I wasn't the kid in school with in the photography club and the yearbook club and that sort of thing. I was more into cars and girls and stuff. But right. uh, my my parents ran. It was a very small newspaper, uh, kind of like uh, what we would call a penny saver about out there on Long Island. But um, I remember one day before I went, I think it was a senior in high school, my my dad said, uh, don't plan anything uh, for after school because you need to learn how to develop film. Our photographer just quit. OK, and that's kind of where my dad is. So I reluctantly did it, but I, I also fell in love with it. And um, a couple of years later, ended up going to college uh, for photography. 
so yeah, I learned the traditional way of laying out uh, publications um, and uh, and developing film and photography and uh, and it was kind of unusual for a small newspaper because we owned the printing press. Okay. So I learned not only the photography side, but the the way that um, you would actually prepare layouts for printing, offset printing. I won't go into the detail of that, but it's way different than it is today. But the mechanics of it, and uh, as with a lot of the more modernized, you know, digital things today, I, I think it's really important to learn the traditional ways of doing them. Uh, it allows you to uh, get a lot more out of the now digital ways uh, of doing things. Uh, so I, I think that helped me. But I always had a love for photography. When I um, when I started Sled Dog Sports, um, you know, these magazines, as you're going to find out or maybe know about already, they're, they're not huge market magazines. Um, and uh, they're kind of niche publications. And it would be great if you could hire a layout artist and hire, you know, uh, people to do separate parts. But you have to wear a lot of hats when you own a small publication. Uh, but I was well prepared for that from uh, my, my upbringing and with the newspaper. And uh, so I found that like my background in advertising photography, which I was doing in New York City at the time, I was working as an agent for photographers and um, working with advertising agencies and layout and photography. And then my just complete passion for the sport of mushing, all the boxes were checked of what I thought it would take to uh, start a magazine. So I did. I actually attempted to purchase um, a, a newsletter, black and white uh, magazine that was published out of New England for a long time. Uh, and those talks kind of fell through. Uh, so I just started my own um, and uh, it really, it took off. And then I, I purchased Mushing and yeah, here we are. <laughs> so on, on the, we're going to just kind of gloss over the sled dog sports side of it. Uh, with that, what was the publication numbers like back then because when you started you said i believe 2004 that was sort of the heyday if you will of modern mushing you know iditarod was really just popping off and it was rocking and rolling yeah back then what was the market like for that magazine as you mentioned it, it was a pretty small niche at that time yeah you know it's really funny i don't remember exactly how i did it but it was just like really you know email and the internet was starting to take off it was before what we would call social media but i reached out and it may have been through a sled dog central forum or it may have just been through emails that um if you signed up for this new magazine that i was going to publish um you would get three issues free and then you'd have the option to um to subscribe after that. So I actually, as you know, I thought I had to do something like that promotionally to, uh, to get the thing jump started. Uh, so I did that. And I think there was somewhere between 700 and a thousand. This was a long time ago. Right. Uh, I had signed up and, um, then I merged though. And then of course the people who subscribed after the three months were a few less than that. Um, but then as I started to produce more of that magazine, which I did for, I think, two years or so, um, don't quote me exactly on that, uh, it grew. And then I realized I needed to merge it with Mushing once I took that over because I was trying to run the two publications side by side and it just was too much. So, but yeah, and then I oh, go ahead, numbers for Mushing. 
we're about the subscription numbers for mushing when I took it over, I think we're somewhere in three or 4,000. Wow. So that, that was pretty good back in the day. So when you moved up to Alaska, you made the deal to, to purchase mushing that's been around since the late 80s. That's uh, really jumping into the fire from, you know, from, I guess, the relative comforts, if you will, of, of living in the city and a, and a full-time job and all that to moving up to, to here we are in, in the middle of nowhere to try to run a magazine. What do you think about that whole ordeal? Well, I actually ran mushing out of New Jersey for um, for a year and a okay. half, maybe two years. Um, but during the winter, I would drive up from New Jersey to Alaska. Um, so I, you know, I made a lot of contacts up there. Uh, in two thousand and I'm going to say six, might have been two thousand five. Um, I actually drove up with my six dog team and uh won the limited north american championships in the six dog class uh still living in new jersey um i believe that was 2006 uh so uh yeah my dog truck in the uh the adma parking lot in fairbanks looked a little weird with new jersey license plates on it <laughs> but it was uh it was a fun time um yeah fun time it was uh you know i i think i'd gone to spent the winters in Alaska two or three years at that point um, before I'd moved up completely in 2007. And um, it was a little bit of, you know, a cultural shock moving up to Willow, as you know. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, but it was fun. And I totally, I kind of knew what I was expect, you know, what I was getting into. And it was great up there where I lived up Hatcher Pass Road there were a bunch of sprint mushers. So we would all help, you know, groom trails and train together and help each other out. At that point, uh, Egil Ellis, Bill Kornmuller um, lived not too far away on, on Hatcher Pass Road, as well as Ken Chizik and, uh, and um, oh, his name is escaping me now, his kennel partner, uh, Karosh. Karosh, uh, yes. Parto, uh, yep. They have a kennel there and there were a couple of other smaller kennels. Um, so it was very competitive, you know, it's like, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, what's the adage steel sharpened steel, you know, we were somewhat competitive against each other. So I think it pushed all of us. And that was like kind of, uh, at Eggles heyday. And I think, uh, Kornmuller almost won the Rondi one year during those years. So we were all like pretty, uh, pretty competitive and pretty, uh, kind of like, I don't want to say the top echelon, but we were, we're all pretty competitive uh, professional mushers. It was a lot of fun. So over this time, uh, I think it's about seven or eight years or so, you're you're here in Alaska writing Mushing Magazine, doing a heck of a good job. I remember pretty much reading every issue back then. I, I, I think I've been reading it since it started, but I really got into it, obviously, when, when, uh, when you were the editor, owner of it, and, you know, is available to underdog feeds and all of that. And then all of a sudden, I guess about the time you sold, it uh, it kind of went, I don't want to say downhill, but it definitely changed from what it was back in the day with you. And for a lot in the community, that's sort of when this magazine sort of fell off the radar. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I guess. Um it takes a heck of a lot. Uh, I don't know if I can curse on the show. Sure, but, uh, sure. It takes a hell of a lot of commitment to do that because for me, the monetary gains weren't 
that great. They were okay. Um, so it just took a lot of passion to do it. Um, and I loved the, you know, the visual part of it, um, laying out the magazine and, um, you know, I, I poured a lot into it and, um, I knew about promotion and I knew about printing and I knew how to get the best rates on it because mushing magazine, when I had it was mailed all over the world. Uh, so you had to find a place that could print it and do the mailing, uh, and you had to figure out what you could do in-house versus subcontract out. It's a tricky thing. You know, at first it seems, oh, like, yeah, I could write that magazine. I could do that magazine. And, um, it, it, there's a lot that goes into, you have to wear a lot of hats and be good at all of them. So I can't really speak. You know, I know when I sold it, I sold it to my friend, Jake Whitcop. And I think he was busy with grad school and stuff. So his interest may have, may have uh, kind of diminished over time. And then I also know Niels and Diana, great people up in Nome. Uh, and I, I really stopped kind of following it after a while because my life kind of took me away from that and more into sailing. Um, I had gone about, I think, eight to 10 years without even owning a dog. When we say it went downhill, it's not necessarily the fault of, of the owners. Uh, magazines in general about that time, I mean, that was really the, oh, yeah. the the advent of social media and everybody's reading everything online and, you know, newspapers went from hundreds of pages down, you know, the Anchors Daily News now is, is, is like, like a, a, a school newspaper. It's just a few pages. It, it really changed yeah. the landscape for print media back then, didn't it? Yeah, that was the beginning of social media. And, um, you know, it, back in the day, Team and Trail, which was like very successful, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, all they had to do essentially is print race results. You know, they could and it could be like a month after the race happened. But with the advent of the Internet, that didn't become that became a really, really bad business model. Yep. Because you could go online and then as Facebook came around in 2007 or so. Um, or maybe a little earlier, uh, you could you know, you could get posts from races and get race results instantaneously. So that whole model of just putting race, the print publications had to really up their game. And as you said, it wasn't just within mushing. It's all across the world. You know, we, we're becoming more and more of an instant gratification. Uh, and we're needing to uh, to uh, to get that, you know, instantly. And if something is a week late, it seems like it's, you know, years old now. Um, but uh what what I thought I could do with with the magazine uh, that you couldn't do online and you still really can't is kind of basically control the the layouts in a way that you couldn't you were you were very restricted at the time presenting images with storytelling uh, online in in a visual way you know you you couldn't you just couldn't do the kind of layouts that you can do you could do in a a print publication. Right. And I really wanted magazine, you know, I'd kind of modeled it after some of the higher end climbing magazines that I had seen. So Greg, I have a couple of questions here now that we've got a pretty good backstory with all of this has happened over the last uh, eight or nine years or so while you're writing this magazine. I guess my first question is what was the coolest story, event, whatever that you covered during all this time as the owner and publisher of Mushing? Well, there were a lot. Um, one, one 
story. Like well, you keep saying that, you know, while I was writing Mushing Magazine, but I actually, I didn't write a lot of it myself. Uh, I hardly wrote any myself, actually, um, except some like product and, and technical stuff. But um, I would hire writers. Um, right. And, uh, but one, one of the thing I did do myself was I, I had the opportunity to fly up uh, and visit George Atla at his place. And um, I guess this was 2010 or 2011, and it was bitterly cold. It was, I think, 40 below in Fairbanks when we left. And when the plane landed up there in Hooslia, um, they immediately put a blanket over the, the front part of the engine. And um, I, uh, I ended up staying there for, I think, five or six days because it was too cold to fly. And there was supposed to be a little race that George was racing in a little village race. And... Um, they didn't even have it. And when they, when it's too cold to have sled dog races in, in the interior villages, you know, it's cold, but uh, I got to sit with George in his house and drink copious amounts of coffee while his neighbors visited. And I picked his brain um, and uh, about mushing. And uh, that was one of the highlights of, uh, of the stories that I actually did myself or any of the ones that I think I, I, I published in the magazine. Yeah, that would have been something cool for sure. Cause you know, folks that are listening, they, they know that name. It's, it's sort of the, the Lance Mackey, if you will, in terms of distance mushing, everybody knows, knows the name Atla. And, and you're right. When I say right, I think that's just sort of a general term by meaning you're, you're, the, yeah. <laughs> you're sort of the publisher owner. You're, you're the guy with all the hats for sure. But you're, you're, yeah. you took, you took a, a very, a very similar model that we want to do. We want to find uh, uh, freelancers and contributors that are able to do that because obviously you just can't be everywhere all the time. And you, and you don't want to have a, a magazine just full of, of your opinions and, and your words. You want to be able to spread the wealth a little bit. And I think that's truly how you become successful on a venture like this. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah. You definitely have to learn how to delegate, you know, the responsibilities for sure. Um, I just didn't want it to be like, you know, my opinion piece or whatever. I wanted it to be a, a real magazine with stories from all around the world, telling the different aspects of mushing from competition to exploration. One of the stories that I liked the most was someone who, biked around Ireland with their dogs. It was, it was mushing tangential, you know, mushing adjacent of a story. Uh, but it was a very cool story about someone who uh, biked George around Ireland. Um, but, uh, you know, there were times when I thought, well, I could really increase the audience here if we started doing more mainstream uh, dog stuff, you know, modeling it after the, you know, hundreds of dog publications you find in the newsstands but i really wanted to keep it for the true mushers and true mushing fans yeah for sure and and that's sort of the same goal we're gonna we're gonna stick with as well so let's jump over to my next question and that is what was your biggest success as the publisher of of either this magazine or even sled dog sports what do you what can you really hang your hat on uh during that time there are two things. Um, I thought I was pretty good at interviewing people. Um, and um, I remember the first interview I did for Sled Dog Sports, uh, the way it kind of kicked off the whole thing was an interview with Terry Streeper, who is the godfather of sprint racing at this point. Brilliant, brilliant mind and an amazing family there. They got three generations now. Um, and um, he was a, a mentor of mine as well. Terry is a great guy. And, um, 
I saw a buddy kind of grow up and uh, he was the first interview I did. And then I did Hans and I forget who I did in the third issue, but I, I thought it was very good in that. And I thought those were successful because it was coming from me, someone in the sport, not, you know, who was actually competing, interviewing somebody. So we had a lot of commonality, unlike if you're just a, um, you know, a newspaper reporter who probably could write a lot better than I would um, interviewing somebody from the outside. I was interviewing them from the inside. So I thought those were very successful. Um, you know, that's just my opinion. But by far, I think the most, I didn't have a lot of great ideas, but one of the great ones was the super dogs. Oh yeah. Um, and started that. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of, you know, every time you go to a race, uh, and you pull your dogs out of the truck, someone's like <clears throat> crouching down on a knee to look at the, you know, look at the dog and look at how it's built and look at its physique. And I wanted to be, I wanted some sort of common thread, a commonality to run across all of these super dogs, as I called them from super teams, um, to kind of, so, so people could compare them. So I, um, I attempted to, uh, I took most of the pictures myself for that, but some of them were contributed, but I tried to kind of, uh, have every dog photographed from as close of a side profile as possible and have the musher write, uh, you know, a few sentences about that dog, because really the, the dogs are the stars of the sport. Um, and uh, I thought that was, that was probably the most successful. I don't know if it was carried on. It was also one of the parts of the magazine that took the most work at the time. You know, I wasn't great using Photoshop. Now you have, uh, tools in Photoshop that help you pull subjects from their background or vice versa. It would be a lot easier to um, photographically do that series now. Um, but I thought that was um, by my own estimation and by the feedback I got one of the more popular parts of the magazine. Well, you know, in our feedback, Greg, everybody says, I don't care what you do, just keep the super dogs. And that's by far still probably the, the most anticipated section of the magazine. I remember when we met with, Nils and Diana several times they said if you do this please keep super dogs so that that is that is the legacy I guess uh, of your contribution to this magazine for sure so next up what was the biggest challenge or challenges with this whole ordeal um for me and it might be better and easier for someone like you that maybe has a better business mind than myself um I tend to kind of follow passions with disregard for how uh, doing that affects my, uh, my bank account. So right. one of the, the biggest challenge was making a living at it. Uh, you know, it had to support, uh, I was married at the time. So, the, and my wife didn't work. She worked, she helped me very much with the magazine, huge help. And um, it had to support that and my sled dog racing. Cause I, all during this time, I was a competitor uh, in sprint racing, um, and uh, the biggest challenge, as it is with anyone in mushing, you know, people say, you know, what's so hard about mushing? You know, what's the hardest part? And I always say is finding a way to pay for it. Right. Because it's the, the old, you know, catch-22 of if you have enough time to spend with the dogs and do that properly, you ain't going to have enough time to work somewhere. You know, you, you have to find a way to do it. Eventually, um, what I did to supplement uh, the income from the magazine, it was kind of a 
par- my time there in Alaska paralleled the growth of the cruise ship tourism industry in Southeast Alaska. So from 2011 to 2015, I would bring all of my sled dogs down to Skagway and do sled dog tours during the summer. And um, that helped a lot. That helped with the challenge of um, being, uh, you know, making the whole lifestyle profitable. But uh, the, the, the um, making it work as a business, as you had, uh, you know, said before, um, it's hard with publications and people are getting all of their information online. And, you know, uh, it, uh, you have to present something with the publication that people can't get online. And that was a challenge. Um, kind of to go off tangent a little bit, one of the things that um, I felt I could do with a print publication, this may help you going forward, um, is to do more long form interviews and in-depth stories that when you're reading something online, you just don't have the attention span for, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. everything online, short term dopamine driven feedback loop, you know, and um, it's, it's different with a publication. Uh, So I felt that, you know, where online they, they could, you could find bits and pieces about races or whatever, you wouldn't probably read 2,500 to 3,000 words online where in a publication that just seems natural. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. And, and one of the things that we want to do is, is marriage that somehow with uh, all the other types of media. So if we do do that long form interview with, with somebody, we can say, Hey, here's, here's a way to, to go watch a video or a podcast or whatever, sort of that multimedia, yeah. that multimedia effect for sure. I was doing podcasts back in 2005 or six or whatever. I don't, you could probably find there's a whole list of them. And I probably have the recording somewhere where I actually did the Mushing Magazine podcast. And, uh, and I was doing video back in 2005 and 2006, putting it up on the internet from the hotel rooms in Fairbanks and Anchorage. Um, but I never really found a good way to marry all of that together uh, to kind of all work in the same direction. I think, Nowadays, there's a little more of a blueprint for that, um, but yeah, that's going to be a challenge, um, but uh, not not something that's insurmountable. Of course. So to end here in 2000, 2015 or so, that's that's the uh, that's when you literally sailed off into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I uh, I got a divorce, and you know, mushing mushing is a lot like therapy. Um, and I used to say, well, it's cheaper than therapy. But then once you get up above a certain number of dogs, you realize that's BS and it's a hell of a lot more expensive. Uh, but, you know, mushing for me provided an escape. Um, when I was living in Jersey City, which is just outside of Manhattan, I had six dogs in the back of my, my brownstone. And I would come home from work at six o'clock, go get my dog truck out of the parking garage, bring all the dogs through the apartment put them in the truck, drive a couple of hours out into the woods and train dogs, get back at two in the morning, you know, and go to work the next day and do it all over again. And um, that was, uh, that was something that was uh, a huge challenge. Um, but uh, I forget where we're going with this. Oh, you're, but... you're getting ready to sail off into the sunset. So it's time to oh, sort yeah, of hang yeah. up the, hang up the publisher hat and uh, pick up a captain's hat. Yeah, you know, if I think now of how much work, thank you for reminding me of that. When I think now on how much work that was, I I get tired just thinking of it, you know, like three or four hours sleep, 
very fast paced, you know, job in uh, commercial advertising and then going back, you know, and training dogs at night. But for me, it was an escape. You know, a lot of my friends would go out to bars, hang out, socialize or go to the gym. And I would just go into the woods with my dogs. And even like training dogs, you know, you get out there, whether it's early season on the ATV or on the sled, once you get out there and the dogs are running, it's just for me, like it really would set my mind straight. And no matter what kind of mood I was in before I started a training run, I always was in a better mood by the end. But I remember coming back from Skagway uh, with the dogs and I guess it was 2014 or 15. And, um, I, I would always wait a few weeks to let the dogs kind of rest because it's pretty physical work doing the tours. And I took, I went out for a training run and I'm like, wow, I'm just not getting the, I just don't love this as much as I, it was a chore. And the minute it becomes a chore, you know how much work goes into the sport. It, it really is. Um, it makes most other sports just pale by, you know, in comparison of how much work goes into keeping a dog team and running a dog team and if that ever becomes a chore man it's it's a big chore and I just felt like I didn't I didn't love it anymore so I started to transition out of it at that point and as you sit right now you you're doing something else entirely I mean you're you're uh we were talking uh, off air you're you're doing some some tour stuff with sailing what what's all what's that all about well you know Going back to uh, taking my dogs to Skagway, I kind of got my eyes opened to the tourism industry and uh, and tour operators. And um, I, I just I, I really thought it was very interesting business. And after I sold the magazine, I managed um, a tour company in Haines, Alaska, that did everything from kayaking to bear viewing. And, uh, and then I came down to the northwest, basically to because uh, I've always had a love of sailing um, growing up in Long Island, New York. I sailed as a kid and um, I lived on my sailboat for a while and just sailed every day I could not having dogs or anything. And then uh, just about a little over a year ago, I bought a business uh, that came with a, a very large sailboat and they for 20 years had operated in the San Juan Islands, which is this beautiful part of Washington state. It's an hour ferry ride from the mainland just to get out to the islands. There, it's a it's a beautiful archipelago of of some inhabited, mostly uninhabited islands. And right now on the 55 foot boat, we do mostly five and six day overnight kind of gourmet cuisine uh, tours where people get to sail and then hike on the islands or kayak around and stuff. And um, that's my job now as a, as a tour operator, uh, doing what I love and. Once again, I took a hobby and turned it into a uh, business and um, hopefully it won't change the dynamics of it as it did for mushing for me. But um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. So you had mentioned that by about 2014, 2015, you lost that passion, if you will. You've been doing this for a decade and a half, I guess, going by that timeline. Do you still think about it? Well, I'm sure, I'm, go ahead. A lot longer than that because I started in the early nineties. So oh, early nineties, kind okay. of Full fledged into the sport for over twenty something years. So, do you ever think about it? Obviously, you know those those memories pop up on Facebook and all that. Do you ever get the urge? You know what? Um, yeah, I do. I, um, but like as a, as you know, and as I already stated, it's so much work to maintain dogs and. Um, 
I don't think I'll ever have a dog team again, but the memories I have forever and um, they're incredible, precious memories. You know, I wouldn't have done things differently in my life. The dogs that I was able to raise uh, from birth and, and spend time with, um, you know, I still kind of driven to tears when I think of some of the dogs and my relationships with them uh, at times. So I do think about it a lot, especially this time of year when your Facebook feed, I'm still friends with all, you know, Facebook friends with a lot of mushers. And um, yeah, you know, I'm constantly reminded of it. Some of my good friends um, are doing really well in the sport. Um, early in, in 2011, when I started bringing the dogs to Skagway, I became friends with uh, Wade Mars, uh, who eventually, uh, who lived in, in the Connect area and eventually moved up to Willow. And of course, Ryan Reddington and I became pretty good friends. And uh, it was really, really cool to see him win the Iditarod last year. And um, yeah, great guy. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, that was really neat. So I am, I'm involved in the sport from a periphery, but I don't think I'll ever have dogs again. I, um, I have a little dog now that's a rescue dog from Puerto Rico. And um, she spends time w with me and time with my girlfriend who lives a few hours away from me. And uh, it's really interesting. You know, when you grow up, or not grow up, when you've spent a lot of time training sled dogs, sled dogs are sled dogs. You know, they, uh, in their DNA, they're hardwired to do what they do. So you can't ever fall into the trap of thinking, I'm such a great dog trainer, right? <laughs> this, this dog runs so fast for me and it goes left and right when I say, you know, ha and gee, um, you think you're a great dog trainer. And then you get a different breed dog. And, and some people may have experienced this. I didn't really. Um, I got this Puerto Rican rescue dog, which has been a street dog uh, in her genealogy forever. And you realize that I need to rethink about training dogs because I knew how to train a particular type of dog really well. This is a different dog. So uh, it's been a challenge. Uh, but yeah, after about, I guess it was eight years or so where I didn't have any dogs in my life. Um, I have this little, uh, in Puerto Rico, they call the street dog Sato's, S-A-T-O. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's really, really kind of cool to have a dog again and spend time with her. And um, of course, all the collars, all the gear that I buy for the dog come from mushing companies. <laughs> I got a walking harness from Howling Dog Alaska. You know, the collar comes from Cold Spot Feeds. You know, I have to have to do that. I feed her Animate, which is, you know, the, when I could afford it, the, the dog food I would buy with my sled dogs. Um, and uh, yeah, funny story, like, not all dogs are sled dogs. Like you get a dog that wasn't bred for that. They can't like walk for 10 miles really, you know? And if you put them on the 32, 20 food, they're going to get fat. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. As uh, they say, you can't, you can't always uh, take the chef out of the uh, the kitchen or whatever that saying is. You still have the little bit of inklings of, of, uh, of days gone past. So Greg, Obviously, a fascinating story, and uh, what an arc going from from those early days of of living in the New York City area to Alaska to now doing a very cool sailing expedition business. That's 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 awesome for sure. Did we miss anything you wanted to mention? Any sort of parting words of advice to to not only me but to anybody that's sort of embarking on on uh, some kind of crazy mushing media adventure what do you think i don't really have any advice uh nothing that you wouldn't know already um and you know because i've been out of it for for quite a while now but i do think what you said of kind of marrying all these different media types uh, you know i think that's 
a necessary thing. And even within online media, you know, there's dozens of things between TikTok and Instagram and, you know, Facebook and there's just a lot to do. Um, the one thing that I found very hard to do, and I'm pretty sure that the publishers after me found very hard to do, was consistency. You know, they say if you're starting a podcast or a YouTube channel and all this stuff, consistency is key. And it's the same for, for publishing the magazine. Um, that'll go a long ways. And that was hard for me because I was such a perfectionist. Like if I didn't have all the pictures for a story or if I didn't have it rewritten to the way I wanted it, um, I would hold the issues back until I got it perfected. But, you know, at some point you got to go good enough is good enough. Um, but um, I also wanted to add uh, along the same lines, if you um, if you ever need anything from the archives or, you know, want to bounce any ideas off of me for what that's worth um, or need any help, feel free to reach out. Well, hey, I really appreciate it. We flew down 3,500 pounds of, of, uh, of stuff from from Diana and Nils. I think we have everything. We were just flipping through one of your issues last <laughs> night, one of the uh, kind of gear review issues, uh, like a 58-pager or something like that. A heck of a lot of work went into that one for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you, one, you did... thing I, one thing I would advise, this is kind of an, a joke for me, and, and I say it half-jokingly, is don't write about sled runner plastic because you'll never – please everyone <laughs> <laughs> hey that that's good advice but i'll 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 put that of uh, all the topics that was that was the most contentious you know <laughs> what do you mean it's not extruded or i forget what the terms were sure you can wax this no you can't wax that you know this is faster in cold weather it's like there was no topic that brought more um you know back and forth and you don't know what you're writing about. Who told you that? Well, an engineer at the plant told me that, and the guy who makes the blast. You know, it was, uh, I kind of jokingly say that, um, but I also think that gear reviews as, like, I'm sure you you know about this, like, you know, YouTube channels and podcasts, gear reviews are, um, are really important. People like them um, and uh, super important part. And I would definitely, as well as super dogs, try to carry that on. For sure. So, Greg, how can folks follow you now? Uh, I know you're active on Facebook. Are you active on Instagram and the like? Yeah, I have the um, the Facebook and the Instagram, and they're both public accounts. Uh, I think it's at Greg Sellington on Instagram. And uh, if you just look for me, Greg Sellington on Facebook, I put mostly... Um, I've been doing a lot of nature photography late, lately, so you'll find a lot of pictures of birds and whatnot on my Facebook page right now. Uh, in the summertime, it'll be sailing pictures. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's where I'm at. Very good. Well, we'll definitely link up in the show notes. So guys that are listening, you can find it there. Definitely check this guy out. One heck of a one heck of a cool guy with his photos and his storytelling. Obviously, just by this podcast, this guy can tell a story or two. So, Greg, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. And uh, I think uh, I think that uh, this is going to be a very popular episode. Uh, I want to say thank you again and hang on for just a second while we end it. And for those listening, we'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Are you a fan of the great outdoors? Do you enjoy the thrill of speed and adventure? Then listen up. Introducing Mushing, your ultimate guide to the exciting world of dog-powered sports and mushing. Whether you're a seasoned musher or just starting out, Mushing has got you covered. 
Get ready to immerse yourself in captivating stories of incredible sled dog races, expert training tips from seasoned professionals, and gear reviews to help you make the right choices for your team. From the breathtaking landscapes of Alaska to the snowy trails of Scandinavia, mushing takes you on a thrilling journey through the world of dog-powered sports. Don't miss out on the latest issue packed with exclusive interviews with top mushers, in-depth articles on sled dog nutrition, and stunning photography that will transport you to the heart of the action. So whether you're dreaming of competing in the Iditarod or simply want to learn more about this incredible sport, mushing is your go-to resource. Subscribe now and get ready to unleash your passion for mushing. Visit our website at mushing.com or find us on your favorite podcast platform. Mushing, where the spirit of adventure meets the power of the pack. Do you eat enough fruits and vegetables? Green Infusion by Wilderness Athlete can help. So what is Green Infusion? It's a blend of super greens, super fruits, vegetable extracts, herbs, and probiotics and delivers a broad spectrum of nutrients that provides a gentle alkalinizing and cleansing effect to the body while reinforcing proper digestive function and restoring healthful intestinal microflora. Just one scoop a day of green infusion is six servings of fruits and vegetables. Learn more at wildernessathlete.com and use DogWorks for 10% off your order today. That is wildernessathlete.com and use DogWorks at checkout. Got a dog training problem? There's a podcast for that to stay updated on everything dogs do on DogWorks Radio. A podcast hosted by master dog trainers and business coaches, Robert and Michelle Forto. Every week, they will introduce you to pet professionals with unique insights on dogs in the veterinary world, in books and films, and working with canines. The podcast also answers questions like how long does it take to train a puppy or what are the different training styles? Get some surprising answers on DogWorks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts.